If you got to choose between sleeping on a Tempur-Pedic mattress or a box spring, which would you choose? If you had to choose between wearing your favorite pair of sneakers or wearing a pair of wooden clogs, which one would you choose? If you had to choose between spending a weekend at a spa resort or spending the weekend camping in the middle of the desert at the hottest part in the summer, which would you choose? Now I know these are some pretty loaded questions, right? But what's the common denominator in all of them? The common denominator is comfort. All told, our society places a pretty high value on comfort, right? There's lots of money to be made on products that enhance people's comfort. There's a reason that our clothes are made out of cotton and cotton blends and not burlap, right? We have memory foam for our beds and lazy boys for our living rooms. We have body pillows and snuggies, and we even found a way to make steel into wool for our kitchens. On top of that, there are TV shows that exploit our love of comfort. Have you ever heard of the show Dirty Jobs? It's a show that goes around and documents some of the world's filthiest and most uncomfortable jobs. If you've ever wanted to see what a sewer inspector does or what a worm dung farmer does on a daily basis, I promise you that's a real thing. All you have to do is tune into this TV show and watch and we can sit on our comfortable couches laughing or wincing or retching, all the while being thankful that we don't have to do that uncomfortable job. But there's a danger in loving comfort too much. And I don't just mean putting on extra pounds. It seems like as we've become more accustomed to comfort, our faith has followed suit as well. We've become Christians accustomed to comfort. We come to our buildings that are warm in the winter and air-conditioned in the summer. Our pews and chairs are padded. Even our Bibles are mostly soft or leather-bound books, easy on the hands. And before you know it, it's more than just the pews that are padded. The messages are padded with easy teaching. The doctrine becomes lifeless and leathery. And eventually, the message of the Messiah becomes moral code mush. Author and pastor David Platt tells the story of his visit to a set of underground churches in Asia. Meeting in secret, arriving under the cover of night, having to keep the blinds closed in a dimly lit room, packed with people intent on serving Christ, in spite of the illegality of Christianity in their countries, in spite of the fact that they would be tortured and executed if they were discovered. He then compared that to the megachurch where he had just become the youngest megachurch pastor in history. The small dimly lit room had been traded for a spacious auditorium. The stone floor traded in for cushy chairs. The heightened sense of awareness for worry-free, joyful interaction and celebration. Platt concluded by saying, As a new pastor comparing the images around me that day with the pictures still fresh in my mind of brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, I could not help but think that somewhere along the way, we had missed what is radical about our faith and replaced it with what is comfortable. We were settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. Luke 9.23 has Jesus saying, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.
So what do comfort-craving fans do with something like the cross? I mean, it's pretty hard to avoid the cross when you're a Christian, right? What can we do with this phrase, take up your cross? Well, what I found is that fans eventually find a way to make even the cross comfortable. They create a comfortable idea of the cross and what it means for us to take up our crosses. So the phrase, we all have our crosses to bear, gets thrown around loosely, referring to even the most menial, everyday tasks and inconveniences. Now, I don't want to imply that God doesn't care about the small parts of our lives. He absolutely does. But we're kidding ourselves when we compare those things to the cross borne by Jesus or the martyrdom of Christian witnesses throughout the centuries. The cross tends to get pushed to the back of our sermons and Bible studies only showing up once a year on Easter. And even though it's in our churches and on our t-shirts, around our necks, tattooed on our skin, we end up with a comfortable cross. But what else are we supposed to do, right? I mean, the cross is a tough sell. It's bad enough that Jesus had to die on the cross, but why did he have to go and insist that we all have to take up our crosses as well? Isn't it kind of ruining Christianity's hope for a decent public relations? Doesn't the cross hinder our ability to recruit new people? I mean, you're supposed to put your best foot forward, right? And don't we want people to come to Jesus? Isn't that supposed to be the point? Having more people come to Jesus? So we try our best to make Christianity sound as appealing as possible. But what have we sacrificed in return? Check out this video of Kyle Eidelman, the author of the book Not a Fan, on which this sermon series is based, explaining his realization that he was trying to sell people Jesus. Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions, made following Him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. And so I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus, of emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. Imagine it this way. Imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married, but she really wants to be. And so I decide to help the process along. And I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her. Wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor? I would never do that. If 
You want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got or I'll send you packing. This idea of trying to sell Jesus isn't all that uncommon. I had a classmate back in seminary who was seeking to enter ministry as a second career. And he told me, I used to sell insurance and now I sell Jesus. And I wonder if we sometimes try to sell Jesus the same way people try to sell insurance policies. The hope with insurance is that you'll never have to use it, right? Or at least have to use it very sparingly. But it's there for the times that we really get in trouble. Most days I don't think about my medical insurance or my car insurance or my life insurance, but I'm glad to know that it's there even though it's not a part of my daily life. And whereas I certainly pay good money for all of those policies, they're not things that require a sacrifice on my part, right? Fans treat Jesus like an insurance policy. They focus on the benefits of Jesus without wanting to put forth any of the sacrifices, and then they ignore him the rest of the time. Fans certainly don't practice self-surrender because, well, that would just be foolish, right? Why would you sacrifice yourself? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a portion of which Rachel read for us this morning, in there Paul talks about how the world sees the cross. In chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. See, for those living in the first century, the cross was the ultimate symbol of weakness. For many, both then and now, the gospel, the message of the gospel, that God came to earth as a man and was crucified, is complete foolishness. One of the most famous pieces of graffiti in history is an anti-Christian etching, which was scratched into the plaster of a wall in Rome. It depicts a man with the head of a donkey upon a cross, and a man standing in front of the cross with the inscription, Alexa Manos worships his God. And we'll put up a picture so you can see that. The inscription is usually taken to be a mocking depiction of a Christian in the act of worship. At the time, pagans derided Christians for worshiping a man who had been crucified. The donkey's head and the crucifixion would have both been considered depictions that were insulting in that society. But if we're honest, we can kind of understand the propensity to view the cross as foolishness, right? I mean, why would God use a symbol of torture and of death and of weakness to save the world? I suppose the idea of the cross is more appealing to us because it's no longer used to execute people and we've dressed it up, right? We're used to seeing the cross as an ornament or a decoration or a piece of jewelry. But if a first century Jew walked into our churches and saw an illuminated cross on the wall, they would think we were sick, right? Imagine people walking around with an electric chair dangling around their neck or lethal injection syringes hanging from their ears. For Jews, the cross meant weakness. It meant shame. It was something with which no one wanted to be associated. And I wonder if that wasn't God's point. That's what makes the cross so beautiful. God took what from a human perspective was foolish. He chose what had no glory and carried no honor. He found the least likely symbol for love and life and said, I'll use that. 
God takes what the world says is foolish and demeaning and shameful and says, watch this. And he turns it into the power of salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that he turns the foolishness of the cross into the power of salvation. And if you look down a few more verses to verse 22, it says, It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolishness to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Who else but God could take a cross that represented defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory? Who else but God could take a cross that represented guilt and turn it into a symbol for grace? Who else but God could take a cross that represented condemnation and turn it into a symbol of freedom? Who else but God could take a cross that represented pain and suffering and turn it into a symbol of healing and hope? Who else but God could take a cross that represented death and turn it into a symbol of life? No one else could do that, but he can. What seems like the ultimate moment of God's weakness was, in reality, the ultimate moment of God's strength. And here's why that matters. Here's what I don't want you to miss. This is the one point for this sermon, okay? And it's important. It's the only thing that you need to get out of this message this morning. What God did for the cross, he can do for you. That's when you are the weakest, you're exactly where you need to be for God to be the strongest. The upside down truth of the cross is that when you're weak, you are strong. If you look at verse 27, where we've been reading, it says, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. It's not that God used the cross in spite of its weakness. God chose the cross because of its weakness. Paul says that God chooses weak things. Throughout scripture, God continually chose the weak over the strong. Scripture is full of examples of that. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Joseph was humiliated. Moses was a stutterer. Gideon was poor, Samson was proud, Rahab was immoral, David sexually assaulted Bathsheba, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was disobedient, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least, Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried a lot, and the Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular, Thomas had doubts, and Paul had poor health and Timothy was timid. The Bible's a long list of imperfect misfits who discovered that weakness is actually strength. So may God do for us what he did for the cross and all those other weirdos who turned into heroes in the Bible. It seems backward to us, but God teaches us that when we're strong, we're really weak. But when we acknowledge our weakness and humble ourselves, that is when we put ourselves in the position to receive his strength. Paul talks even more about this truth in his second letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, it says, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. 
for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I take pleasure in my weakness because it's when I'm weak that I'm really strongest through God. Now, I don't know anyone who naturally delights in weakness, right? In fact, most of us go to pretty great lengths to disguise our weaknesses. Like when you're in a job interview and they ask you that dreaded question, what's your greatest weakness? I still haven't figured out how in the world you answer that. I'll tell you what you don't say. <laughs> you don't tell them your actual weakness because if you do, they're not going to hire you. You don't say, I'm never on time, I constantly procrastinate, I can't get along with my co-workers, and I don't even know how to turn a computer on. You don't say that. But you have to say something, right? So what do you say? Well, we always end up coming up with a weakness that sounds more like a strength, right? I can be a bit too much of a perfectionist. I tend to be a workaholic. I work too hard and I care too much. Why do we do that? Because in our world, in our economy, Weakness isn't strength. Strength is strength. There are 2,000 self-help books published every year to communicate one message. You can do it. You have what it takes. Look deep and find the strength within yourself. Tony Robbins has built a $600 million empire teaching people how to awaken the giant within and unleash the power within and tap into unlimited power. But Paul says that true strength comes from our weakness. Several years ago when we were traveling over spring break, my son had packed some toys and books into a backpack and he insisted on hauling that thing around himself. I volunteered several times to carry it for him, but he wanted to do it himself. And it was clear that he wanted us to notice and point out how strong he was. We came to that conclusion when he would say to us repeatedly, look how strong I am. But on one occasion, it was late at night, and we parked in the hotel lot, kind of far away from the entrance. I knew Landon was tired, and he started off strong, but pretty soon he was struggling. With a heavy sigh, he stopped, and he didn't really say anything, and he just turned and looked at me and dropped his backpack on the ground. I picked it up, and I put it over my shoulder, and we kept walking a few more steps, and then we stopped again. Another heavy sigh, and this time he just reached up to me and I scooped him up with my arms. I was happy to carry not only my son's bag, but also to carry him. And I wanna learn a lesson from him. I want to admit my weakness. I wanna ask God to show his strength in my life, to do for me what he did for the cross. It's part of my pride that I wanna carry my own load and I refuse to admit my weakness. But the cross makes it clear that when I am weak, he is strong. And that's a test for followers. Will you, like Jesus did before us, trust God enough to let your weakness be his strength? Because it's when we let go of our need for comfort, our need for control, our need to glory in our strength or our accomplishment or our paycheck or our trophies or our co-workers' approval or whatever it is that keeps us from abandoning our comfortable version of the cross. It's then that God does in our lives what he did in Christ's death. It's then that God does in our hearts what he did for the cross. And he takes followers who are hanging by a thread and he bolsters their spirits. 
He takes followers who are at their weakest moment and uses that weakest moment for enormous kingdom good. He takes followers who are all but defeated and he turns their testimonies into life-giving messages of truth and hope all to his glory. May God do for us what he did for the cross. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would do for us what you did for the cross. Do for me, do for this church, do for our city and our nation and our world what you did for the cross. That we might begin to understand why you chose such an uncomfortable means of self-sacrifice. Do for us what you did for the cross. Forgive us for the times that we've relied on our own strength. Use our weakness to demonstrate your strength. Work through our weakness to establish your kingdom on this earth. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God, both now and forevermore. Amen.